0: Greetings cyberspace, and welcome to episode 78 of the Double Density Podcast with your host Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, let us reflect on the number 78. And what I want to do is I want to add a 19 to the front of it. 1978. Okay. Because this is October, and I'd like to celebrate the release of uh, two of the greatest genre-slash-horror movies of that year. The original Halloween and George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Halloween was 1978? That's right. Oh, wow. I always thought it was an 80s movie. No. It, it
1: it kicked off the whole slasher jar pretty much, like the modern slasher jar in America. Because Friday the 13th was... 1980. A, 80 or 80, okay. And that wasn't even with Jason. No, the first one wasn't. Well, no. the, there was He's child part Jason. of it, yes. Okay. So, hold on. We should probably
0: just say, like, like spoiler alert to anyone really, yeah, hasn't seen a 40 this like, year old almost four-year-old movie. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, and then like uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Shoe a couple years later. But yeah, it was basically Halloween, originally titled uh, The Babysitter Murders, uh, okay. and
1: Giorgio uh, uh, Romero's classic Dawn of the Dead. I enjoyed Dawn of the Dead a lot. Um, I even enjoyed the remake from 2004. It was really good. I, I've always liked the zombie genre for some reason, even though lately there haven't been any like quality zombie movies, if that's even a thing. Yeah, I'd have to think back. I mean, I think what happened is that
0: uh, Walking Dead kind of um, took over the limelight in terms of the zombie genre as a whole over the last couple of years. Because before that, I'd have to think uh, of quality zombie movies. Maybe like the, some of the shorts in the
1: VHS uh, films. Like all the zombie movies that have come out recently seem to have the budget of half an episode of Walking Dead yeah it's all if that actually you know what
0: a really great one is the battery which was made out of a micro budget and i don't want to talk about it too much because i'm actually working on uh two very special short episodes about how uh technology has both helped and hindered horror movies over the last couple of decades so i don't want to touch that now uh i guess we're giving people sort of like a, a preview of what's to come
1: yeah um, we have a, a halloween episode coming out on halloween morning so we might as well do something halloweeny because we are a paranormal show Density. In the spirit of Halloween, I'm going to say something that's pretty scary, Brian. Hit me with it. Um, the Pixel 3 almost makes me want to switch to an Android phone. <laughs> this is a first. Uh, what is it, 78 episodes in? And and here we are. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. It's just uh, the Pixel 3 seems like a really good phone. It's not as nice as an iPhone, uh, but it's it's a, a good phone. So, So why not get into why you would want to do the switch? There are a few things that are, are really interesting to me about the Pixel 3. Is uh, Number one, and it's something that people have been saying for years now, is that the Pixel's cameras are amazing. Uh, the Pixel 2 had the best camera, and apparently still the best camera, even after the iPhone XS came out in a lot of people's tests. And this Pixel 3 camera, which apparently hasn't changed much in terms of the actual hardware of the camera, the software and what the Pixel 3 is doing has made it Really, really incredible in terms of the pictures you get out of it. Uh, There's tons of sites detailing the uh, comparison shots from different phones, but really good pictures with this Pixel phone. I've seen a couple, and even zoomed in in low light, they look really good. Well, there's like this special thing where it allows you to enhance shots, like almost uh, to the CSI level of enhancement when you zoom in. (laughs) Right. Right. It's it's really cool. But the, the feature that stood out to me the most so far and everything uh, out there that people have been saying about these new Pixel phones is the call screen feature. Have you seen that? I Yes, I saw that on a BuzzFeed and news article. I watched the Verge review and it's really interesting how it works. It basically answers your phone for you if you see a call coming from a number you don't know. So instead of having the two buttons to answer or, or decline, you have a third button That's call screen, and you can see and hear what's going on in the call. And if at any point you realize, oh, it's just like uh, my doctor calling to confirm an appointment or whatever, then you can just answer the call. But if it's one of those horrible spammy robocalls or even any cold call from a telemarketer, you can choose to ignore it. So
0: it basically it asks a series of questions, right? Like you have pre like prompted uh, uh, bits of text that you can serve up.
1: It's sort of like. A less human-sounding version of Google Duplex that they demonstrated uh, earlier this year.
0: Okay, and, and basically, what happens is that that's a it's a, a type two uh, voice assistant that basically interrogates whoever's
1: on the <laughs> yeah, end. Interrogates a good is a good word actually, and you can kind of choose what you want it to say. And so it's sort of like a you know, in video games, sometimes you get like one line you can choose, and then the character right. spouts off yeah. a whole bunch of stuff. Well, this is what it does. You kind of like, uh, I can't talk right now, and it just. Says this in more than I can't talk right now. It's it's better so basically than, you're treating the world like an NPC. Exactly, exactly. Right. Everyone's an NPC in my game. <laughs>
0: uh, but this could be fun for you whenever you get your next uh, Canadian Revenue Agency call.
1: Flashback to an old episode with that where I got this weird robocall, and that was in the days when we still had our home line. We don't have that anymore. And I have to say, uh, well, the problem is, is me saying this is uh, going to cause this to happen. But I haven't been getting many spam calls lately. Well, that's because I haven't been signing you up
0: for as many uh, newsletters and things. Oh, thank I, you. I appreciate it. Well, to be
1: very honest about all this. There are a lot of reviews of the Pixel 3. And and Google had an event last week, and uh, or a couple of weeks ago at this point, uh, where they basically showed a few products. The Pixel 3 was one of them. They also showed their new Slate, uh, which is an interesting tablet that runs Chrome OS that also runs Android apps. They took a lot of shots at Apple with this thing, with uh, basically because no one's ever made a tablet that... Anybody wants to use other than the iPad, Android tablets were pretty much a disaster. I, although I do some see some in the wild, but I mostly see iPads out there. A friend of mine uses a Surface, and I make fun of him continually because he keeps crashing. So, See, I don't count the Surface, though, because the Surface is basically a Windows computer. But it crashes? Your friend's Surface crashes all the yes. time? Yes, yeah. Uh, he tries to run music off of it, and it's just a really bad move. Oof. Um, i I, I do see, uh, surfaces in the wild as well in the train sometimes, uh, but really very few Android tablets. I wonder if this Chrome tablet will take off, although it seems really expensive. Like the whole point of Chrome, uh, PCs are the fact that they're cheaper uh, and great for like the education market. This is going into like the thousand dollar territory, although it is a not really? and and uh, lots of stuff, but do you feel like it'll make a dent in the market? No, 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 it won't. At that price point, no. No, it won't. Um, If somebody wants a a tablet, they should still just get an iPad, really. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So
0: While you are pro Pixel, you're still uh, Apple
1: to your core. Yeah, the the Pixel 3, though, is a really good phone. If somebody asked me, hey, I hate Apple phones, I don't really want an Apple device, what Android phone do you recommend? And I'll go into my spiel of, I don't really know Android that well, but if I were to recommend one, it would be a Pixel phone of some kind because every other Android phone kind of like ruins android by putting their own garbage in it yeah there's always the added on stuff yeah even samsung that makes arguably the best android phones have a really crappy interface i've seen some samsung stuff and it's uh, do i want to use the word garish like <laughs> coming from it's really there it's it's like offensive and uh yeah and not not
0: for me but then again it isn't designed for you anyways right but you, you're saying the pixel 3 would be the sort of your stock answer for now
1: Yeah, and it's a clean interface. It seems to be really good. Um, There's a lot of good videos out there. Um, MKBHD has a really good, he has two good overviews of it. Uh, The Verge video is good. The best written review, though, by far, goes to Matt Honan uh, from BuzzFeed News. I, I sent you the link to that this week. People have been talking about it. It's like half a review and half a condemnation of the
0: use of smartphones. And I agreed with every single word of it, having read it twice now, I definitely do feel um and I give this kind of thing a lot of thought, and which is weird for someone who does a tech podcast, but I wish I could leave my devices uh, well enough alone for days at a time, but I can't
1: because they are essential to my day-to- day living same here. people know me as like the tech person as work at work and stuff, but I don't know if they notice, but I'm never really on my phone, especially when like other people are around actually like have have you upgraded to iOS 12 yet? Yes. And how's your screen time stuff been? Have you taken a look at that at all? Hold on. I'll pull it up right now for you. So I average four
0: hours a day. Four hours. Okay. This is the weird thing though, right? And I guess it doesn't close. But three and a half of those hours are Spotify playing. So I guess it doesn't close the screen properly.
1: Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because uh, I'm at like 148 for today, but that's like... Podcast listening and stuff. Let's see what it was. Oh, well, Safari was forty-eight minutes, what the hell was I doing on Safari?
0: Yeah. So Spotify showing me hours at a time every day.
1: The the one I like the most though, like, is pickups. And today yes. I'm very proud of myself. It was three per hour. Total pickups fifty-eight. I do one hundred twenty per day, but then again, I get a ton of. I get. Oh, uh, 200 messages a day about? Yeah. And and that's the thing. It's like, a, even though, like, if you have a lot of pickups, it doesn't mean like you're ignoring the rest of the world. It's just, it's a good indication of, though, like, if how many times you look at your phone. Uh, I try not to look at it that often. And, Listening to a bunch of tech podcasts lately, people have been talking. They've had this exact same discussion, so uh, we won't really go much further in it. But a lot of people have discussed their screen time lately. And uh, the Pixel 3 does a lot towards that as well, where... uh, There's like a lockout mechanism. Yeah, it it turns the phone into grayscale, things like that. But Matt Honan's review, really great. Matt Honan, I I first learned of him a few years ago when uh, his iCloud was hacked. And he lost all his photos and stuff. Is that the one through like a lot of, he got hacked through like social engineering? Yes. Uh, and not social engineering of himself, social engineering of the person at Apple. Yeah. And this was all because somebody wanted his amazing Twitter handle, which is Matt, M-A-T. Right. I remember reading that uh, uh, somewhat recently though, too. I, I, guess I think we, have- we
0: talked about it on the show.
1: Oh well, yeah, we might have yeah. And uh, so, look, go read these uh, reviews of. I was about to say interviews with the Pixel Three, but it doesn't uh, do that yet. Well, so- soon
0: enough, you know, these interview, these reviews will turn into interviews once these uh, phones become sentient. Like imagining interviewing the
1: Duplex, like it's going to happen within the next year. I-, I-, I, think. I was exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth because it kind of does an interview now when somebody calls you and you don't want to talk to them. Um, but the fi- I said three products, and the final product was something that kind of intrigues me, and it's the Google Home Hub. Okay. I have to be careful how I say Google Home because it might wake up. Can't let your robot overlords hear you. And I do like how the Google Home Mini has like fit into our lives. We don't use it a lot, but every once in a while, we'll just, like we'll just ask it stuff. My kids ask it. My wife asks it stuff. I ask it stuff. I I listen to podcasts in the morning. Uh, it's good. Like I've taken them off of Overcast, and I put. I I there's a few I listen to as I get ready in the morning, and it works really well for that. And this Google Home Hub is a frame basically, um, which is cool because you kind of put your Google home picture, uh, your Google pictures on there from Google Photos. And it's kind of cool to have in the kitchen, like uh, as an example, like if you're doing cooking something and you want to watch a YouTube video of it, you can just talk to it and it'll show you. Um, One thing they made a big deal out of is that there's no camera on it. And I think it's because of something Facebook announced uh, a little bit earlier, which was uh, Facebook's portal. Um, We haven't talked about that. Have you seen anything about the Facebook portal? Well, I've seen
0: about how it's, uh, there are a lot of questions. So basically, uh, in the context of how Facebook is currently operating, there are a lot of questions about privacy and security as it pertains to this
1: uh, new uh, device. Well, they introduced this and pretty much everyone said, are you crazy to let Facebook into your house with both a microphone and a camera? Uh, because we can't trust Facebook, but they came out and said, "Look, none of this is going to be used uh, to target you with ads and stuff." When this first came out, uh, but then recently, Recode um, had an article where they talked about how they went back on that. Uh, and because <laughs> last last week they wrote, like the the previous article about this, they wrote how no data is collected through Portal, even call log data or app usage data, uh, like the fact that you listen to Spotify will be used to target users with ads on Facebook. Uh, And they wrote that in their first thing because specifically that's what they were told by Facebook executives. And yet here we are. But uh, they wrote also uh, that since then, Facebook has reached out to change its answer. Portal doesn't have ads, but data about who you call and data about which apps you use on Portal can be used to target you with ads on other Facebook owned properties. Oh, great. Perfect. Exactly what I want. Well, at least they, they lied about it and came out with it right away instead of telling us 20 uh, weeks down the, down the road. So I've gone back and I've basically
0: deleted a bunch of my personal information on Facebook. So basically, like, there's a bare minimum there to keep me going. And I think uh, if I didn't have to use it for work or for the podcast, I would have gone rid of it by now, for sure.
1: You are the VP of uh, social outreach for the podcast, yes. I guess. So uh, you probably use Facebook more than me for it. But Uh, We don't really have a Facebook group or anything. I actively dislike Facebook. Uh, I do like Instagram, which is the, the mantra many people have. is like, I hate Facebook. I like Instagram. All owned by the same company. Yeah. But I have come close several times to just going into Facebook and just closing my account. So this is a great uh, piece of advice for everyone out there who uh,
0: loves us and wants to annoy Angelo. Go ahead and head on over to facebook.com slash double density podcast and leave your anti or pro Angelo comments. He's not going to see them anyways. Only I will. So please fill my heart with joy
1: or sorrow. And then Brian's going to send me a Facebook link. Check (laughs) this out. And I'm going to say, "Ugh, it's Facebook. uh, Not going to click. So even more damning than that,
0: though, like I want to get into this story about how there is a lawsuit um, against Facebook about how they've been lying about their video play stats to advertisers, to people who are buying um, uh, their services on Facebook. Right. So the idea is that uh, Facebook has not really sort of disclosed the idea that um, their uh, metrics of how they count ads, because you can put a video on Facebook and then boost it right for more visibility. And so apparently um, inherently with this system, uh, the metrics are way off um, by some estimates from 60 to 80% overestimated.
1: So more lies from Facebook. Um, Yeah. Shocker. Um, This is really bad. Uh, I don't know if it's worse than them spying on us. But this is pretty bad because people have lost their jobs over this.
0: Yeah, this whole thing is like uh, all of these different organizations and, and there's a tweet embedded in the Variety story that we'll link to We're saying that something like 90% of media organizations pivoted from text to video because of this Facebook switch. And now we find out that... Uh, so the way that it, the problem is outlined is that anytime a viewer has watched less than three seconds of video, they do not count it as a play. But somehow through more of the math involved in that, it turns into... Uh, overestimating how long an average watch time is, sometimes by almost 900%.
1: Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like uh, three seconds becomes a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. And so there's like a bunch of, I, and I don't know the algorithm
0: behind it, but this company's alleging that they've been uh, basically bamboozled and they're spending a ton of money on a platform and not reaching nearly as many people as they wanted. And then all these other media organizations have kind of uh, jumped into the fray and have done similarly and produced video content that isn't reaching their intended target audience, uh, despite the, the amount of money that they put in.
1: And, and the other thing with video content on Facebook, which I think we've touched on before, is a lot of it's stolen. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, like, there's a, a
0: large problem with video on Facebook in general. And this is just one more. I mean, and I think the, the, the outcry is one thing, right? So, for example, like these 50 million or 30 million, um, breached accounts is, is one thing because these users don't pay anything. They should be lucky to use Facebook, right? But as soon as you start hitting their financial bottom line on Facebook with people who are investing money, uh, into, uh, ad space and, uh, you know, the boosting content, then that becomes a larger problem
1: for shareholders. Everything about Facebook seems to be collapsing in on itself at this point. I, I wonder what's going to happen. I, I don't see them turning into another MySpace or going away anytime soon because so many people use Facebook. But I've noticed a lot of people have the same feelings I've had in the last few months where I don't really go to Facebook anymore. Sorry. Yeah, not my thing anymore. I don't like it. A lot of people are saying that to me. So what you're
0: uh, intimating at this point is that Facebook is going to collapse onto itself um, and then turn into a black hole
1: of reality. Oh, maybe uh, with everyone else getting sucked in. Is this the end of video game season here? Is it the ending of video game season? Yeah, because we don't have any items this week we about video games. Okay, well, just wait until I get like uh, a new video game, then I'll talk about it. You, you want me to talk about my farm? I can talk about my farm in Stardew Valley. Uh, let's do that then. In that case, really, you got ninety seconds. Um, I really like Stardew Valley. It's coming out on iOS uh, later to come out on Android. Everyone should buy it. It's great. Angela was late in editing last week's episode because he was playing too much Stardew Valley. Is that correct? Uh, I will neither confirm nor deny.
0: The amount of times you've texted me with like bits of like your farm life is astounding to me
1: over the last like I'd say like 10 to 12 days. It's such a fun, good game. I realize I'm like two years late to the party. Well, if anything, I'd say you're almost like 20 years late to the party given
0: the fact that like this is an offshoot uh, spiritually of the Harvest Moon franchise. I never played Harvest
1: Moon. I- I'm assuming it. you did. Loved it. Yeah. yeah this is Harvest Moon on the Super Nintendo Harvest Moon on the Game Boy yeah I don't know why I never really got into that I guess it wasn't uh, I was too cool for school with that but now I'm not cool at all uh, and this game is pretty cool though um, I have a nice looking farm I've started a winery sort of and 90 seconds all right well anyone <laughs> who likes video games will like no I said it's, it's 90 seconds Rachel, that it ends here
0: uh, and with that my friend I'll <laughs> see you in the paranormal section Stardew Valley computer I'm a guy everything made out of and wires. double density welcome back to double density as always we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal the first item this week is not really an item that I I I care to mention all too much because I know it's been covered a bunch of places but ARS Technica earlier this week or ARS Technica depending on how you decide to read it uh, put out a whole article about how allegedly the To the Stars Academy was $37 million in debt which is not true actually. Um, So basically uh, Eric Berger of ARS Technica put out this article about how uh, their balance sheet and their SEC filings were showing $37 million in debt but that's not actually true. Um, The real story behind it is that there is approximately $37 million worth of stock options available to employees that's not actually at thirty-seven million dollars of actual debt.
1: Well, it looks like Ars Technica updated the uh, the article recently. Uh, at the bottom, there's an update saying, uh, the original story mischaracterized to the star's deficit as debt. The story has been changed to reflect a more accurate picture of the company's finances. Uh, did you uh, give them a call and uh, let them know? Yeah, yeah, I hit up the financial bad phone and let them know. But no, I think mostly um,
0: Tom DeLong himself was actually very quite rational in a lot of his postings on Instagram, which is a weird thing to say in 2018 when we're talking about uh, financial records. But he was actually making a lot of sense in terms of how these things operate and uh the mischaracterization of of course is unfortunate but it's also one of these things where it's it's the first hot take right so everyone walks away thinking that to the stars is actually
1: massively in debt which is not quite true at all actually look i'm not gonna say i feel sorry for to the stars but it, it's like everybody's actively rooting for them to fail uh like even just look at the picture that Ars Technica used of tom DeLonge; he looks bonkers holding of his secret machines book yeah, his eyes are, like, wide open. Wide open to the conspiracy folks he knows. And that's what I feel is, like, unfortunate about a story like this, right? Where they kind of trash what he's up to
0: and kind of call him Coogie and then get the whole point wrong, which I think is kind of hypocritical.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. Like, we'll we'll keep an eye on to the stars. We always do. They come up, like, every three or four episodes. So, uh, and they are the most high-profile organization doing things with UFOs at this point. And obviously... Yeah. Uh, it's one of our favorite topics to uh, either uh, talk about or debunk uh, oftentimes. And uh, we're going to come to them often and uh, we'll see what's happening. They've done a few things that are good. We've mentioned that before. Uh, this was just like a, a seemingly bump in the road that uh, was more of a pebble than like a huge boulder. Uh,
0: second quick item of the night is RIP Paul Allen, Microsoft man, and also uh, a major investor in the SETI project. Was he? I didn't realize that. Yeah, he donated a bunch of money to SETI in the early 90s, I do believe, in order to keep it going. And uh, it wasn't uh, a continual amount of support, but he pitched in when he could. Double density. So now we've reached the meat and potatoes of episode 78's paranormal section. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, your favorite book. Uh, definitely not one of my favorite books. We're going to talk about Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code and uh, some of the stuff and uh, oddities behind it. We're not going to be talking uh, exhaustively or extensively about this because I feel like we could do like a three-hour show about this very easily. But we've kind of condensed down some of the things we found um, that are fun and weird uh, that we want to share with you guys um, so that you can kind of enjoy things. And, uh, you know, if you've read the book, you're going to learn something new perhaps. If you haven't read the book, this
1: might either force you to read it or not, right? Yeah, The Da Vinci Code. Look, full disclosure when I read it in like 2005, I was in like uh art history world because I was doing my degree and uh I liked it. I don't know why. It was uh, <laughs> We've talked about how Dan Brown writes. It's not exactly the best writing in the world and uh, I enjoyed it although there's so much wrong with it, so much. And we'll be talking about some of that in this episode. You've mentioned before how Dan Brown writes isn't that Like there's a sense of accomplishment because like, oh, I read four chapters tonight, but you really read like seven or eight pages right so the first thing I'd like to mention and I I have definitely mentioned
0: this on the show before is that uh, I think the first reason why so many people love to read Dan Brown books is indeed that sense of accomplishment right because each chapter is like three to four pages there are 70 to 80 chapters per book and you know it feels good to be able to say like I read four chapters of the book tonight so I feel like that's part of the, the selling point beyond the fact that like it's a thriller um, another big point I think too is that the public is always interested in the fringe right so the unknown and I mean uh, like in the 1990s it was all about alien truths right so all the Jonathan And Friggs stuff and then Alien Autopsy and the X Files, Richard Belzer writing a book about, you know, conspiracy culture. And I feel like uh, Dan Brown realized that there's a niche Um, to be exploited kind of like after all of this had died down, right? Because this came out in 2003. So he exploited the is it real or not trope uh, at the time of the release of the book. He claimed, and this is like verifiable, that 99% of the book is based on truth, which is definitely not the case. And we'll kind of unpack some of that.
1: Yeah, he's literally on camera saying that. And I think he mentioned it in a Today Show interview. And um, it, it was his second Robert Langdon book. I think this was his fourth book overall and he's always had a bit of a conspiracy bent to his literature. I think in Angels and Demons they talk about the Aurora plane, which is like this mythical plane. I don't even think it actually exists that flies above the atmosphere. Um is isn't that the plane that would leave those funny donut shaped contrails, I think.
0: Yeah. I think I think that's where you're yeah. I, I'd have to go and check, but I think that that is the case. Let's set the stage here. I'm going to give a quick run through of the synopsis of the book. You stop me if you think that I'm I'm missing something or you need to add something. That's good to you.
1: Yeah, you've done a lot of the research on this, and um, I'll I've, you know, you've made you've made me dredge up my art history research <laughs> cap. Uh, so, uh, thank you for that. I guess in the opening
0: chapters of Dan Brown's 2003 novel. The Da Vinci Code, and I'm, I'm calling this a novel because this is definitely not uh, nonfiction. Uh, the curator of the Louvre in Paris is shot, which sets uh, in motion the entirety of the rest of the story. The man who shoots him is on a quest for the Holy Grail. So what happens is that the curator in his last moments, he leaves clues like he poses himself as the Vitruvian man. So he's hoping that the police will decipher this before he dies. So the cops investigate and call in
1: symbologist Robert Langdon. Now, the symbologist isn't a real thing. I want to point this out he might as well have made him an art historian, which makes more sense. Uh, I, reading that, when I was reading the book, I was kind of looking into it, like what a symbologist is, and the closest thing to it is somebody who studies semiotics. Yes, and I,
0: semiotics is the way in which you understand what I'm saying in the way that I understand what you're saying. It's a series of signs and symbols, and uh, basically it's kind of the code in which we deliver
1: language. Exactly, and uh, the other thing is... Uh, I'm sure everybody knows what the Holy Grail is. Um, and it's interesting to know that this book takes a twist on what it's supposed to be, which is what we think of um, popularized maybe in uh, mostly in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it's the cup of Christ and anybody who drinks from it uh, has the ability to live forever. Although in the Last Crusade, they kind of like limit it to like the room it's in. Right.
0: So going back, so Robert Langdon teams up with Sophie Navarro, agent of the Department of Cryptology uh, in Paris, to investigate this whole kind of like trail. It turns out that the curator was a member of the Prairie of Sion, which we'll get into. It's a brotherhood. Uh, And also, uh, do you know who else is a member of this brotherhood, Angelo? Uh,
1: Lots of people. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Isaac Newton and Victor Hugo. And, um,
0: there's a whole bunch of other ones, the entire supposed list, right? This pair goes through various works of art in order to uncover hidden clues leading to a capital T truth. We'll leave it at that. So you can go ahead and pause the podcast, go read the book, (laughs) all 70 or 80 chapters. And then like, you know, you can watch the movie too and then return, or you can just continue to listen on and we'll kind of unpack some of the things that are going on with this
1: book. Speaking of watching the movie, actually, when I learned we were going to do this, Um, I didn't watch uh, The Da Vinci Code, but I did watch the latest one, Inferno. Did you like it at all? It was fine. I like Tom Hanks. (laughs) Like, it's hard not to like Tom Hanks. And um, Felicity Jones was in as well, and I really liked her in Rogue One, and she was pretty good in this too. So what you're saying is it's a kind of a, eh, go see it if you want. It's on Netflix. Just watch it on Netflix. Okay, there we go.
0: So the concept of the secret history of Jesus has existed for untold centuries, and bringing that context into a fictional narrative based on, quote-unquote, like, real evidence kind of wraps it all into this, like, nice little bow that ties together uh, truth and fiction. But the word truth here is kind of you know, nebulous. Uh, so somewhere in the middle, some wind reason is where the truth lies, but a cursory glance at the research you used to create the real framework of the Da Vinci code suggests that this is a great big yarn spun together by a very, very flimsy
1: uh, house of cards in the middle. You kind of had me go look at it from like the, the truth side of things. Um, and Leonardo da Vinci is one of my favorite artists from the Renaissance. Something that uh, bugs me more and more now. And I used to make the same mistake uh, until I learned uh, the truth. You shouldn't be calling him Da Vinci. That's not his last name. It's for where he's from. So this is one of the things I want to get into. So Le- he's just Leonardo from a town. Yeah. Leonardo Da Vinci. Like he's from there. Uh, he didn't have a last name like Michelangelo, these Italians with no last names. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling.
0: Again, it's one of the things I think that people use against Dan Brown when they talk about um, problems with his
1: research slash the book itself. Well, the, the thing is, it's a very common mistake and I don't begrudge anybody who makes the mistake. It's you think it's his last name, right? But you're also not right, until you research it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If Dan Brown did all this research, ninety nine percent of this is all true and stuff. He would know that art historians never refer to Leonardo da Vinci as da Vinci. They just call him Leonardo. Apparently, he like doesn't Dan Brown live with an art historian? His wife's an art historian. Like she should have told him, "Hey, Dan, uh, can you call it the Leonardo Code?" Although, in, in all fairness, uh, the Da Vinci Code has a much better ring to it than the Leonardo code yeah it would be weird no yeah i guess yeah no i agree with you i agree there's more of a a zing to it yeah i think it's more of like an alliteration thing than it is a factual thing and then he just went with it so let's get
0: into some of the problems with this the the truth framework of this book does that sound good to you uh yeah
1: and i'll i'll interrupt (laughs) you where necessary if if necessary all right, so let's begin with the Priory
0: of Scion so ostensibly described as a fraternal organization dedicated to protecting uh Jesus and Mary Magdalene's sacred bloodline because the whole idea here is that Jesus faked his death and then he and Mary had a bunch of kids they moved to France they intermarry I they, they moved to the France. Friend. I know <laughs> yeah. like... and they basically uh, begin and create the bloodlines of the various different um, royalties uh, of the European continent, right? So uh, the the priories uh, assigned were also the protectors of the original Christian doctrine, which we'll talk about later. Um, and then, historically speaking, this organization allegedly also gave birth birth to the Knights uh, Templar, which historically, and this is factual, existed from nineteen uh, from eleven nineteen to thirteen twelve. So according to the Prairie history, they've counted, as we're saying, Da Vinci, Victor Hugo, and Isaac Newton as grandmasters or leaders. This organization, according to the website Fact, Fiction, and Conjecture, is, quote, dedicated to a united Europe and a new world order, and the Catholic Church has been engaged historically in a war to destroy the dynasty and its protectors, the Cathars, and Knights Templar, in order to retain authority, afforded it through a patriarchal line of popes, beginning with Peter, instead of the legitimate hereditary succession that began with Mary Magdalene. So basically, this kind of touches upon one of the, the main points of the book, which is the Catholic Church versus uh the the scion folks and then like opus day which we won't be getting into in this episode because that's a whole other kind of a barrel of monkeys but it, it kind of sets up a lot of the conflict now opus day does exist right yes it that does exist, but, but not, not in the context
1: not in the way it exists in the book like in the book like this weird evil organization but the prior siren was made up whole cloth right
0: yes but not for the book okay so yeah, the Priory is supposed to uphold the history, the sacred history behind the bloodline, this whole uh, Jesus and Mary offspring thing. While the Catholic Church needs to preserve Jesus as the bachelor and the martyr in order for its version of biblical teachings to make sense. So that's kind of the crux of the conflict in between the two uh, factions in this piece of fiction.
1: And now we're going to go back to the Priory Uh we've made we've established that they're made up. But who were they made up by? It's not like a make. It's not for the book, like you said. It's, it's no, exactly, yeah. So, as for the Priory themselves, here's one thing to keep in mind. While
0: organizations like the Knights Templar and the Cathars are legit, prior to 1956, there's no actual mention of the Priory. So, it turns out that this was all a fabrication by a Frenchman named Pierre Plantard, who, along with André Bonhomme, registered the name as an organization dedicated to ostensibly uh, building low-cost housing. But they are also hoping to establish themselves as a Christian organization that would exert influence on the country, a sort of chivalrous order that held some mystic component to it. And this is kind of where it gets off the rails. So these ulterior motives, uh, as created by Plantard and Bonhomme, but mostly Plantard, were soon unearthed as Plantard continued his quest of uh, self-aggrandizement. So he created the folklore of the Prairie to propagate the story for his own personal gains. So there are suggestions that perhaps he created this myth in order to establish himself as the head of a new movement that would take over France, and he'd install himself at the head of a new order. Like Of course, like this is all uh, every megalomaniacal person would ever dream of at this point. And uh, his plan has also been exposed as part of a larger framework for him to claim to be the great monarch as prophesized by Nostradamus. And basically what he's done, he's, he, he has this whole idea, and we'll get into it in a sec, but the beginning of this framework is explored in the 1961 novel Les Templars sont permis nous, L'Eguine de Gisard by uh, Gérard de Cède. So basically, what the idea is behind that is that he begins to falsely uh, place documentation uh, in a bunch of places that, that uh, moves him closer to a bloodline uh, as established by Nostradamus. He's like Billy Meyer, but for Jesus. So not only is he Billy Meyer, but we're going to get into some territory that's is uh, really fascinating about sort of like a holy place in France that sort of uh, can contain anything yet nothing at the same time. So the fertile breeding ground for the conspiracies that follow largely, uh, you know, in um, certain novels and then in The Da Vinci Code, were largely born out of 1967's La de Reine. So this was originally a manuscript that Platon cannot get published anywhere. So it's was uh, retooled by Desède into the book as has existed and then to great sales when it uh, was issued as a paperback in the late 1960s. We're not going to be touching upon Plantard and his involvement of the propagation of what's located at uh, your favorite site in mind, the site I was just mentioning, Rennes le Chateau, too much. But I will say the follow. After Plantard and DeSed's book, the following things are suggested as having been located at Rennes-le-Chateau. So we have the Ark of the Covenant. So it's apparently actually hidden in the area. It's also alleged that the site rests upon a ley line, which we previously talked about in our uh, Disney Themes Park episode. Uh, oh, and maybe, like, apparently, allegedly, if we want to follow all this, the remains of Jesus Christ are held there too. Of course.
1: Of course. Oh, oh, right and next there's to the UFOs RV. involved. And
0: Just there's, there's what?
1: UFOs involved. UFOs. The, of course. Of course. Um, the. Speaking of Disney, uh, Brown um, also connects the Holy Grail to Disney, and uh, that like the Little Mermaid is a reference to Mary Magdalene. <laughs> oh, of
0: course. But yeah, so the Chateau is basically the uh, biggest joyland or like theme park that every conspiracy theorist would ever want to visit. Um, if any of these or all of these are to be believed,
1: why don't we hear more about this? Though it, it seems to be overshadowed by a lot of other things, or is it just that we don't run in these circles?
0: The big thing, I think, is that it's not tied to any current interesting folkloric things necessarily. Like It's kind of a time and place kind of thing, so I feel like it existed in there and then was proven largely to be false, of course. So I feel like there's not a ton of credibility. There's not a ton of um, interesting things happening there either. But you you
1: do see them. these people poke their heads up every once in a while. A lot of the research that Dan Brown did basically comes from another book uh, that I also read after reading The Da Vinci Code, actually, uh, called Holy Blood holy grail right right
0: so we we'll get to that in a sec okay um but i also have to explain uh so basically in the 60s uh during the time that these books are written plantol begins to illicitly deposit false documents at la bibliothèque nationale de france about the priory that he's written himself and he has friends collaborate on so he's hoping to add legitimacy to the story so he's like hiding documents in in the library which i think is like a weird thing right because i don't really go to libraries to like hide my genealogy charts
1: yeah, but it's it's a good way of if anybody investigates you, they're not going to really look too hard and say, "Look, we dis- we did discover the documents in this uh, library." Although I guess they didn't work very hard at forging them uh, and making them look no. authentic because um, we we know these are wrong. But yeah. some people believe them, including um, people that write books that make lots of money. Yeah. So he also, apart from hiding genealogy charts, paid
0: to have middle-aged, uh, looking parchments created, which had, uh, the documents had also been included in that book, Reine, So some of these documents were also slipped into Lauderain and the factual basis behind a lot of the documents provided in the book were also suggested to be like all like all of this is just like a false creation right altogether so uh, Plantard spent most of the 80s and 90s revising the myth behind the prairie to the point where he kind of walked back most of his initial claims uh, that were kind of created during the more well known um, era in the 60s and the early 70s so there also exists over a 100 pieces of correspondence between Plantard de Seve and Philippe de Cherizy who's the guy who created all these fake pieces of parchment about how to keep the hoax going and uh, keep the hoax in the public eye and it's. it's. It's a really, like, it's the nail in the coffin of the entire kind of uh, notion behind, you know, René Chateau and, like, all of this
1: sort of, like, idea of the Priory. The whole book is based on saying that it's kind of, at the beginning of the book, he says most of this is fact, right? Yeah. And he's playing this all off. And by 2004 or 2003 when the book came out, this is all proven as a hoax, if I'm not mistaken. Right, so Plantard
0: died in two thousand at the age of seventy nine. So in the mid nineties, he testified in a French court that he had made everything up. After a search of his home revealed uh, like a gigantic amount of forged documents related to the Priory. So Plantard had um, he did this thing kind of like what the Mormons do, where they like repatriate people after their deaths. So he basically um, claimed that this uh, French banker Roger Patrice Pilat was part of the Brotherhood after his death in nineteen eighty nine. So it gets kind of convoluted, but basically. Um, uh Pilate was involved in like uh, a banking scheme and then like the French officials had to make sure that like he wasn't involved in like some weird clandestine stuff at the same time as was mentioned by Plantard and as, as he bored this dead man's name to add legitimacy to his illicit organization. So uh, this all leads to his house being searched and all of these documents being discovered.
1: It's a little frustrating when and if you you know you're reading the Da Vinci Code, thinking and the the opening of the book mentions this. I wonder if newer print copies mention this as uh, no, no, they don't. Okay,
0: as someone who recently went to a bookstore uh, to check out a recent printing, no.
1: Okay, so okay, at least they've done that. Uh, but everybody who read it, the millions of people that read it in in the early two thousands. All thought they were, including myself, when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing that all this stuff is real. I I mean, I enjoyed the book. Like, uh, I even bought uh, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, um, the illustrated copy of it. She hadn't read it, and I thought, oh, the illustrated copy is kind of neat because you have all the artwork in it and it's kind of cool. And I'm studying art history, so it's like, it's it's a good gift. And uh, yeah, it shows you all this artwork, and that's like real works. But the way it's mentioned in the book like one example it's like glaring to anybody who's studied any art history is that the last supper is not a fresco right it's it's tempera on stone and it's, yeah it's like i guess we're being pedantic but no not really <laughs> no not really i think point, <laughs> it points to art argued. history is nothing if not pedantic <laughs> having having been in a degree for for a while and uh, met many art student, history students who um do I want to use the word pretentious? Sure, why not? I can. I'm allowed, uh, right? I'm allowed making fun of my yes. own kind. Yeah, yeah. I can make fun of Italians and art history students. <laughs> it's it's stuff like that, and the whole thing with the Last Supper of Jesus being seated next to Mary Magdalene, and it's not St. Oh, John. We're going to talk
0: about that in a little bit. Yeah, we're okay. going to talk about that in a little bit. Okay, good. Yeah. Because because I feel like we're moving through history, right? So we're moving from uh, the the Sion Brotherhood, right? So uh, just as a footnote, so Brown treats the priory slightly differently uh in this novel than like the alleged history right so the priory in dan brown's words are more of a mystery cult interested in restoring the feminist theology uh to its teachings in order to recontextualize the ways in which early christianity has operated like the idea of the fen- feminine divine existing um which the catholic church wants
1: to sort of hide yeah and that makes sense um in terms of the catholic church and all that but none <laughs> of it's real yeah, no, no. So we're going to move from
0: the late 60s into the early 80s to the book you were just mentioning before, a book that is heavily cited. And also, uh, uh, Dan Brown in the book itself, uh, in the Da Vinci Code itself, mentions the name of the book. So it's a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail by Michael Beja, Richard Lay, and Henry Lincoln. And so those guys have just make- been
1: so happy that their book was named in an extraordinarily popular book because <laughs> that book got reprinted. And I was one of the, the, the schlubs that bought a copy of it because I really wanted to read it. And it's uh, it's pretty boring. Yes, yeah.
0: I've, so I I'm going to get into this in a bit, but I read that and it's sequel. So basically, what has happened is that three, these three men um, created a series of television specials about a lot of the evidence, of uh, the Priory and the Reine Le Chateau and all the mystic stuff, the Knights nice Templar. And then, um, so the book informed a fair amount of the plot for Brown's novel. And because of that, two of the three authors uh, eventually decided to sue Dan Brown for plagiarism. And we'll get to that in a sec. So here's the thing, though. The marketing behind Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and its follow-up, The Messianic Legacy, were sold to the public as works of like nonfiction, right? So steeped in very cherry-picked historical research based on uh, Plantard's work um, and his genealogy and all that.
1: And when I read it, I thought it was a nonfiction book. I thought it w- I was learning something historical.
0: Uh, so, as we were explaining before, and uh, so the secret history of Jesus, him and Mary Magdalene uh, moving to southern France, you know, uh, uh, intermarrying and interbreeding into European nobility, securing a pure blood, uh, bloodline, and basically creating the basis for all of Europe's royal families. Uh, and the Merovingians the or something like that, The Merovingians, right? yeah, exactly, the Merovingian dynasty. So, this gives rise to the Priory, which we just covered. So, the book then concludes that the Holy Grail is actually... Mary Magdalene's womb. Oh, and or the the Grail is also the bloodline that was born out of the union between Jesus and Mary Magdalene.
1: Yeah, it held Jesus's blood. It was what the Holy Grail held. Uh, But in this case, it, it was much more in the literal sense and not in the whole wine and bread thing
0: yeah exactly so it's kind of a literal uh, interpretation of what a Grail could be so the book is really interesting for the first 30 pages as we begin to sort of unpack um, the history of how they've discovered this and then it quickly goes right off the rails in a very densely packed yeah. uh, 400 plus pages uh, so having read through that and then the messianic legacy which is the sequel it's a very much like a slog that you don't want to need to bother with unless you're very very interested in the well
1: and, yeah and that's why I said like, I was fascinated by it because like you said the first beginning is really interesting. And then it really gets bad. So to note, the authors actually used Plotard and, and
0: Desheri's forged documents by which to build a lot of their case on in their novel, unaware seemingly that these like documents were fake, right? So now we have the situation where it's kind of like an inception level of, of lies, right? So the Da Vinci Code, which Brown has claimed to be 90% truth, is based on Holy Blood, Holy Grail, right? Which is then based on forged documents created by these French perpetrators.
1: I'm glad, like you said, they've taken out the whole non-fiction angle from it and just basically said this is... They might as well put it in like an alternate universe where uh, symbologists exist and don't really know anything (laughs) about about art history. Albino monks are running rampant everywhere.
0: double density. So one of the more problematic aspects of uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail is that it cites the Prodigals of the Elders of Zion as a historical document, right? So to those who are wondering why that's a bad thing, so the the text first published in Russian in 1903 and then translated and published in English in 1919 is a deeply, deeply anti-Semitic piece of literature that basically outlines a vast global Jewish conspiracy for world domination, which has been very quickly debunked uh, as early as 1921 in the British press, right? But the thing is that this thing is still printed and distributed in certain race realist slash racist circles to this day and has also been sourced by William Cooper. Oh. So he mentions the protocols as documents of fact in his book uh, Behold the Pale Horse which we talked about with TJ um, some episodes ago but uh, Cooper claims that it's not actual Jews that are to be held accountable for the eventual world
1: domination it's the Illuminati group. Of course, and uh, did he trudge out the Illuminati in this book, or was it in? He's he's brought them up in other books. Uh, Dan Brown loves his uh, his pseudoscience and stuff like it's it's very bizarre the stuff he's into. Um, there's a great New York Times review of the book. Um, it's it's an article called "The Last Word on the Da Vinci Con." And there's a great, great quote where it says, all the usual suspects and accoutrements of paranoid history get caught up in this thousand-year jaunt. The Cathar heretics, the Knights Templar, the Rosicrucians, the Vatican, the Freemasons, Nazis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Order of the Golden Dawn, everyone but the abominable snowman seems to be in on the game.
0: So as a side note, Rob from Our Strange Guys has graciously sent me his copy of William Cooper's. Uh the a pale horse so thanks rob i'm pretty sure i'm probably on a watch list now if i wasn't before also something it made it past the border yeah yeah something very interesting to note is that until uh, september 2004 walmart was selling copies of the Prodigals of the elders of zion um, on its website until people pull up a fuss because the description made it sound like a piece of genuine nonfiction. oh walmart I know, I know. Uh, just as a quick note, because I kind of went deep on the research about the protocols. So, the protocols are claimed as a found document, but a lot of the evidence points to its creation in the early 1900s, almost a century after the Russian Empire acquired or inherited the world's largest Jewish population in, in the late 1700s. And an era of anti Jewish sentiment was bred over the next century, setting the stage for the creation of the forgery of the protocols to be taken as real. So we'll go ahead and we'll link to uh, the wiki entry for the protocols of the elders of Zion in the show notes for you to get a better idea of why it was so easy for this piece of literary forgery to gain traction different times. So why don't we get back to holy blood, holy Grail, my friend, please. All right. So if we are to believe that this novel was real and not a piece of fiction, That would mean that two of the three authors, remember I had mentioned that before, so one of them declined, I can't can't remember which one of the three, Uh, two of the three decided to sue Dan Brown, but they could not sue Dan Brown for boring liberally for what they quote unquote believe to be history, right? And the judge in the trial agreed with this line of thinking, along with the notion that the defense kept switching their case, which was weak to begin with. So the authors were in a kind of catch-22 situation. If the novel is real, then the Da Vinci Code was boring from real historical events. But if it was fake, then the trio of authors have to show their hand and the book gets discarded, and then that becomes an issue too. And to note, however, uh, during the lawsuit, right, so this happened, uh, I believe, beginning in 2004-2005, uh, that s- sales of Holy Blood, Holy Grail skyrocketed in comparison to the years prior to Dan Brown's book's release, right? So yeah, one of this the was the a dumb stunt. Well, exactly, right? And I feel like that's very much, uh, you were one of very many people, right? Because the name does get name-dropped. The book does get name-dropped
1: in the book itself, right? In, in The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown writes it in. Well, I remember reading the book and saying, whoa, boy, I got to read this actual book that talks about this without the whole murder mystery angle and I get some actual history.
0: <sighs> what a mistake. But how crazy is it that we go from the 60s and one set of like forged documents that inform this other book written in the 80s uh, based on those sets of forged documents? And then Dan
1: Brown's like, yep, 99% real, everyone. Yeah, I can't believe... and I was fascinated by Dan Brown at that point. I was really like looking I went back and and this happened with a lot of people they went back and read the other books like Angels and Demons became super popular because it was the other Robert Langdon book and lots of other books seem to have been like adapted to like kind of fit it to the whole Leonardo da Vinci angle where I read this other book about Leonardo da Vinci uh, and some sort of mystery and reading the book I was like this book makes no sense and basically I, I looked it up later in that they shoehorned the whole Leonardo da Vinci angle into the book to kind of sell it
0: Oh, well, there you go. I feel like it was all the rage. Oh, it really? Know, almost was. 20 years ago at this point. Yeah. Uh,
1: I um, I was looking at different things to kind of in the research for, for this uh, episode, and I came across a documentary on Amazon Prime um, called uh, The Da Vinci Code Decoded. One and, of uh, many,
0: many, many, I'd imagine.
1: And I almost watched it, and then I realized it was probably going to be hot garbage and uh saved my 90 minutes and watched a few episodes of parks and rec <laughs> i feel a much more reality-based
0: alternative right there yep so let's switch gears because i kind of want to talk about da vinci and his works and some of the what do you, things that who, do you about about, so, who do you want to talk about
1: brian who do you want to talk about leonardo <laughs> yes okay good
0: <laughs> so the great bottom feeder of alien related tv content ancient aliens uh, has aired several episodes dedicated to the uh, tenuous link in between leonardo and in brackets da vinci close brackets and aliens and has created a near cottage industry of explainer videos on youtube some of which we'll throw into the show notes as if it's like a garbage can for all of these videos to sort of exist in and i tried to make you watch a couple and it did oh my not go God, well
1: brian brian I tried. I tried. I even tried at like double speed and I could not make it five minutes into the first video sent me. Um, So I I didn't, I don't mean like I didn't take note of the stupid title of the stupid thing, but uh, I'll link to it. And it has 325,000 views, meaning the 325,000 people have been totally misinformed by this garbage. Uh it's like bs about hidden messages in Leonardo's works. But not but not only that, but like uh, they kind of like reinterpret his history to fit the narrative. Like it's totally made up. Um th- first of all, her voice. Uh it sounds like and I am not one to make fun of people's voices. I don't have the best voice either. It's very generic. I've been told that. Someone today actually told me that you sounded like an
0: audio turtle. Really. Thanks. Like like pleasant
1: slow. Oh constant. okay. I thought like okay, well that's fine. That's that's actually a, that's a that's a compliment. That's fine. But um, like she sounds like the voice of like an instructional video for farming equipment. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, so
0: these two videos who that each have like hundreds of thousands of views, right? Um, unpack uh, a lot of uh, the interesting links behind Leonardo and aliens. But so they're made up example, links. Like, they're made up yes, links. Like yes.
1: So she mentions the the angel in the Annunciation. Okay. Uh, Very famous work. Uh, And she's uh, like... She didn't call it the Annunciation. She calls it the time the angel came and supernaturally impregnated the Virgin Mary. Uh, Correct. But it is well known as the Annunciation. She says that x-rays have revealed that the angel that Leonardo painted disappears and is not visible. I couldn't find that anywhere. There's no like... And I have access to like scholarly articles, right? Because I work in a university so I can... Easily access this stuff, and I did. We got a uh, we got a Robert Langdon Jr. here. Yeah, look at me. I'm a symbologist. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing about this. No one has ever like if they have X-rayed this, it's just to see what it was painted on and the materials and all that. But. Nowhere is it mentioned that this angel is invisible and uh, Leonardo uses magic powers granted to him by aliens to
0: paint. Okay, it. so let's let's get into this. Okay, so uh, these videos uh, claim that Da Vinci disappeared from 1476 to 1478. And uh, can we establish that we're just going to call him Da Vinci? Like, it's yes, his, like professional I was just
1: name. about to correct you, and uh, I just let you go. So let's just, let's, let, you yeah, know, it, like, it's a stage it's fine. name, right? So it's, As it, I said it's, before... It's very pedantic of me to say it, and it's it's. But it's, not- it's
0: also very correct, though, and I think it points to a lot of the problems with Dan Brown's uh, way in which he interprets uh, reality. Double density. Before fourteen seventy six, he's busy like making uh, two dimensional paintings. He disappears quote unquote for two years. And then he reemerges, uh, back quote unquote smarter and with more complex inventions and engineering mechanisms in his yeah, He mind. invented the iPhone. Yes, exactly. Um, so, uh, and also people are quick to note that in the time right before his two year absence, he records an entry into his journal about exploring a cave and being drawn to it almost supernaturally. So, um, some proponents of the ancient astronaut theory believe that he encountered aliens in that cave, which sets up his two year disappearance. And then, uh, he is in space and he is being trained by
1: extraterrestrials you know they mentioned the period of of there being no records in 1476 to 78 but again this was during the renaissance uh it's not exactly like they had computers, or uh, Leonardo had not invented the iPhone yet, so they couldn't keep uh, perfect records. But it's also possible he was away studying or in hiding because when he came back, he had all these interesting, uh, detailed drawings of cadavers and stuff, and like that wasn't really legal to go like cut up bodies. So it's possible that he was in hiding doing that. Who knows? I do know it wasn't aliens. Okay,
0: Angela, let's get into uh, your area of expertise. Let's get into the art itself. So um, uh, Dan Brown mentions the Mona Lisa um, and says it's kind of like an ambiguous sexuality in the book, which I do not believe to be true, but he points to it as an idea of the feminine ideal hiding in plain sight.
1: Um, There was a debate, I remember this in the 80s or 90s, where people were wondering if it was a self portrait of Leonardo, but it was, it's an actual person, Lisa Garandini. Uh, she was the uh, the wife of um, Francesco del Giocondo, which is why in Italian it's called La Gioconda. Oh, but uh, yeah, it's not called uh, the Mona Lisa in uh, in Italian. Even if you go to the Louvre, I think it's it's presented as uh, La Gioconda. Okay. Anyway, it's it's not him. It's not uh, him in drag or whatever. It's just a, a woman that they, he painted. It was not something. Uh, very out of the ordinary can we safely say it's the most valuable piece of art in the world i like that it. yeah it's up there it definitely is probably number one i'm trying to think what else there'd be but yeah let's go with that but
0: let's get weirder with it with the mona lisa right so there's a lot of people who for some reason want to mirror a lot of uh, da vinci's works so the mona lisa mirrored hides in alien head according to one of
1: these videos oh uh, yeah i didn't watch that one sorry i couldn't i really couldn't brian i tried um but I, I actually went back and deleted that video from my YouTube history. Wow, you actually like were aggressively against this video. I did not need that uh, popping up other videos. I didn't want. I did not want that being fed into the algorithm.
0: So, apart from Melissa, the Virgin Child with Saint Anne is also, if mirrored, shows an alien image. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to link to in the show notes a video of Saint John the Baptist mirrored. Uh, to theoretically include an yelling face. So we'll link to the video. It kind of feels like it's the like the literal equivalent, like you we were saying before, to like one of those, uh, like a 90s thriller where like they're looking at like security camera footage and they keep yelling, like, enhance a bunch of times until they see what they
1: want. A lot of the stuff he did were commissions for payment. Uh, Michelangelo, the same thing. And then the interesting stuff is really his drawings and all the work he did on his own. The you know the Vitruvian like man. all the invention related yeah, stuff. yeah the inventions that really didn't work uh the the airplane or whatever uh, did he did he invent the UFO too like all these things that these people kind of want to read into too much um are frustrating for me uh, because I do appreciate his work a lot it's is one of my favorite artists and it's he didn't really have that huge a body of work to be quite honest that was actually attributed to him. So the idea is that he was like somewhat lazy with this, right? Like he
0: contracted yes. out stuff. Yeah, exactly. He outsourced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's one of the sad truths about very famous painters who were quote unquote more prodigious is that they spent a lot more time uh, allowing assistants to uh, work under him in exchange for learning, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's like in, if, you know, in a few hundred years, if people say, well, uh, Steve Jobs made every iPhone ever. I believe that. It was invented, like he didn't invent the iPhone, right? He he oversaw the ideas that all went into it, but the iPhone wasn't invented by one person. Yes, uh, Johnny Ive was the one who designed it, Steve Jobs approved it, but the work that went into it wasn't just one person, but one or two names are going to be associated with it. Yeah. So let's talk about your favorite fake fresco, The Last Supper. Yes, the temper on on stone. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So uh, some believe, as we were mentioning before, that the person located to the right of Jesus is not the Apostle John, but Mary Magdalene.
1: Yeah. And again, um, Leonardo is is the artist behind uh, several of the most famous paintings in the world. And this is another one where it's been redone In so many different ways, like Battlestar Galactica had a Last Supper, The Sopranos had a Last Supper. There's been so many Last Suppers, and it's, uh, I think it also appeared in Parks and Rec, because I've been watching, binging on that lately. But it's really interesting how this one painting of, that again, was a commission for a church, right? It wasn't something that he decided to paint and put all this meaning into. He painted it to make some money, and now hundreds of years later somebody put it in a novel to make some money and made up his own interpretation of it
0: what well, what if i could act as like a devil's advocate and i'm not using that as a pun right now <laughs> um but what if i could say that because of the fact that these were works for hire that he decided to have fun with them
1: no doubt actually that that's i i, I wouldn't say you're playing devil's advocate it's just uh he didn't have this much fun with it to like create no, a no. whole
0: conspiracy so there's two things, right about about the apostle John. So uh, in a lot of Da Vinci's works, women tended to look down, much like John is in the, in this image. Yeah, that's true. So I think there's there's that, but there's also like the the more insane idea that if you mirror John, it becomes an N for Mary Magdalene.
1: Yeah, that's just really ridiculous. Actually, <laughs> sorry. It's. It is uh, like it look. Okay, if you look at it and look really hard, yeah, I guess it could look like uh, something more. But come on, let, let's uh, let's be
0: serious. Any last words about the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, or any of the topics we talked about
1: tonight? It's, it's kind of ridiculous uh, now that we think of it. Looking back on. On how much I enjoyed that book, I won't lie, I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, that's fine, as long as you don't treat it as like based in reality at all. No, but for a while, I thought it was. That's the problem, right? In that when you write a book and you start it with saying that this is 99% based on fact, it makes one think that they're learning something, even though they're not. That's the problem here. So you feel hoodwinked? Looking back, I guess a little. And that's why like I didn't read the latest Dan Brown book um he and also he took forever to write like a sequel to that thing he just and to find it in paperback was like impossible for like four or five years wasn't it for a long while yeah yeah it was weird he like milked it for all it was worth anyway that's besides the point the cottage industry that like sprung up just behind this one book is fascinating in and of itself I agree with that, and as we are saying at the
0: top of the segment, this is by no means an exhaustive study of all the things wrong with Dan Brown, his folklore, and how he reinterpreted Christianity for his own sort of uh, uh, financial gain, I guess would be the best way to put it simply. Um, but this is uh, just touching upon a couple of things that we found interesting about the, the, the novel itself and the works of art and the fake
1: history behind the fake book. Yeah, and I, I sincerely doubt Dan Brown had any idea that this would, like, explode into, like, the biggest thing ever. Uh, and like, it, it was one of the best selling books for years and years at that point. And uh, I doubt he expected it to to come of this. He just thought he was writing a decent murder mystery uh, after having three mediocre novels that like, no, not that they were mediocre. I went back and read them. They were fine. Uh, they just didn't sell well. This seemed to have captured the attention of of many more people. And I don't think he went out with, the idea of like misinforming people. He just wanted to write a fun book. Yeah, but then he also claimed that 99% Yes, okay, yes, true. yes that's, so, true. He, that's He did milk it for all it was worth. That's true. And it's weird that he hasn't had much more blowback on it, right? No, and I can't figure out if he actually believes in any of this or if he was playing it up and he's actually like a hardcore skeptic about all this. I can't really read him. I don't know if he's like... uh anti-religion or anything like that i can't figure him out well dan brown if you're at there you can add us at double
0: underscore density you can message us on facebook.com slash double density podcast you can find us on instagram uh under the same username you can also email us dan brown huh at double density podcast at gmail.com
1: if we end up interviewing dan brown in a few in a few weeks it would be pretty funny let's do it why not just
0: put it out in the world right like a like the secret? Have you the secret exactly? Like, let's put this on, <laughs> Another our, like a vision book. board. I'll print out a picture of Dan Brown. I'll stick him up there, and like, and I'll frame it properly. And we'll want to talk to Dan Brown about all these things because I feel like a part of me does want to believe that he isn't that gullible and he just knows what sells. Right? he's a showman.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, like I said, I enjoyed the book. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I've watched the movies. They're fine. How can you not like Tom Hanks? Right. It's true. It's
0: true. I wonder how Tom Hanks feels about all this, though. Tom Hanks, if you're out there, tweet tweet at us at double underscore density, or you can email us at double density. Yeah, they just call out everybody. Why not have them email us? You know, why not? So Dan Brown, Tom Hanks, if you're out there, the secret's probably working for us. I think, Angela, it's a good time to bring episode 78 of Double Density to a close. Tune in next week as we get into the nitty gritty of the idea of cannibalistic tribes. Doggy want a bone? Angela, I will see you next week. See you next week.